Nicholas Dart and Matthew Klippenstein are back again for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, Clean Technica's weekly podcast about the hottest news and most interesting stories in the clean tech field, focused especially on electric vehicles and solar energy. Check in weekly via cleantechnica.com, SoundCloud, or iTunes to get your electric fix. Hello everyone, Matthew here. A short preface to our current episode. We had some numerous challenges in terms of audio quality, so apologies about that. I was recording from a new location, and it turns out there was a fair amount of background activity, and the microphone setting was such that it was super sensitive to a bunch of clicking. So apologies for that. Otherwise, enjoy the show, and we'll do our best to have a quieter setup for next week. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 48 of Clean Tech Talk. I'm Matthew Klippenstein here with Zachary Cheyenne and Nicholas Zart. As a quick reminder, show notes are available at cleantechnica.com, <laughs> and you can support Clean Technica's Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash cleantechnica. How are you two gentlemen this week? Crickets, uh, crickets. <laughs> had a family, family with the flu, so it was not an easy week, actually. It was the worst I've seen any of my three girls, my two girls and my wife sick, so it's been tough. But hey, life goes on. We're moving forward. How about we jump into the, the, the first story, I guess the solar, solar plus storage? Sure. Let's, let's do that. So, you know, I, I think both of you have maybe been in this uh, sort of clean tech world longer than me, but I, I started covering in 2009. I think, and uh, 2010 especially, and you know the, the the market has just changed so much in eight years. It's crazy. Like you know, solar was blowing up, was getting big. You know, eight years ago, it was, but it wasn't really. It was like <laughs> at the time it seemed big, but it was it was still like what we where we are today is just dramatically different. You have this the the learning curve, the experience curve with these technologies. So as solar the solar market has grown tremendously the costs have come down to an amazing degree we recently talked about the costs just keep coming down faster than people expected for solar and the same is true for batteries so you know there's there's all these funny stories of projections of of cost drops for solar and batteries that are like if, if they come from like an oil-based uh, player or a coal-based <laughs> player like the iea international energy agency or or bp or something then the the cost drop projections for like 30 years are like the same as they have been for like the past two or three years. <laughs> and uh, we see this over and over with, with solar and now with batteries, uh, wind to a degree, which we'll get to in a moment, actually offshore wind is a big one. So now we're hitting this point all of a sudden where solar plus batteries is beating natural gas in some US electricity markets, which is like, you know, solar and wind started beating it a, a few years ago. But then when you get to the point where solar plus storage is beating natural gas, it's like a whole nother ballgame because now you have more flexible, more responsive, more on-demand clean electricity than natural gas. So you're beating natural gas at everything, at cost, flexibility, on-demand, uh, on you know, ramp-up time. So we're just at this interesting point in the market where we're starting, where we're starting to see markets and, and also other markets around the world where solar plus storage... And we've also seen it with concentrated solar power plus thermal storage, but so that's another story. But hey, what, what do you guys, any thoughts on this or, should, or uh, does it just lead right into Matthew's, Matthew's story? 
as, as a guy in California, Nicholas, I'd be curious to get your thoughts because you guys are kind of the epicenter of this um, with all the regulations that the California uh, grid manager, Kaiso, I think it is, uh, has been putting into ensure storage can play its proper role. Yeah, you're right. I, it's, it's really weird. I mean, living in California, it, you always have the sense that you pay for so much. And at the same time, people always make fun of you. But at the same time, you, you look at what the, you know, the, the state has done and you look at how far we've come. And, and pretty much like you said, Zai, I mean, it's been 10 years of covering this whole industry and to see today where we are. I mean, it's exciting. It's giddy. So I think it's really interesting to see how, how fast everything is moving out here. Like I know the state has a lot of programs right now and incentives, and it's working really hard at making it happen. So it's, it's exciting. It's exciting. What about you? Because I mean, you're, you're also up there in Canada, and I know you guys are doing, you're doing a heck of a lot up there. Yeah, so our experience in Canada with solar and storage is going to be a little bit different from your guys. Uh, we do have some sunnier areas, like in southern Ontario, in Alberta as well, where in the summertime, perhaps you can get a good complement to the grid. You can have solar and eventually solar plus storage uh, displacing peaker units. Uh, our challenge is going to come in the winter, where our electric uh, demand, electricity demand tends to be higher. And that'll especially be the case as we try to electrify everything because natural gas uh, heating is going to hopefully be replaced by heat pumps and similar devices. And so here, uh, while the Sun Belt, it's a no-brainer and it's great to see that solar and storage are going to obsolete combustion, obsolete natural gas peaker plants, because the hotter it gets, the more your, uh, your uh, peak demand is going to be. I wonder if in, uh, in colder areas, like in maybe the northern parts of Europe, in Canada, we might see more of a wind plus storage or a, or a general storage which isn't associated with a specific renewable energy project coming to the fore because in the winter, we don't get that much sun. But uh, in the winter, as it turns out, you tend to get more wind energy uh, than you do in the summer. And that has to do with the density of the air. Basically, when air gets colder, it gets a little bit more dense, which means uh, when you have decent winds coming through, that wind at the same speed will actually push the turbine harder and create more electricity. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, so, the, the, the thing I always find interesting with these, with the big reports done on uh, going 100% renewable or 70% renewable is how much variation there is across geographies on how, how that's done. So it's never, it's never a one-size-fits-all. It's always like what works in this region is different from what works in this region. And uh, wind, I mean, wind, I actually had a GE exec on the panel I moderated in Abu Dhabi last month. And, uh, you know, this topic came up of integrating storage because they started doing this a few years ago. And this is becoming more of a norm where they integrate storage with wind. Of course, it's needed less in very stable wind markets like uh, offshore wind, <laughs> which we'll get into. But it's still, it's, it's, a, it's a great solution. And, you know, I'm in Europe, of course, and we have a similar issue with solar plus storage is only going to get you so far in the winter in Europe. Uh, so you have, you know, different perhaps uh, hydrogen storage, perhaps pumped hydro or, or uh, compressed air, but uh, it varies depending on so many factors. Uh, but I think what's really interesting with the solar plus storage in the Sun Belt too is that, you know, solar has been dramatically cutting the peak demand in, in these markets, uh, but then it quickly has to ramp up to meet evening peak, which is the, the bigger peak now. So I think a solar plus storage is just going to really cut into that evening peak when people come home, turn on the lights, turn on the TV maybe, 
And then you get a very different, I think, electricity market in the Sun Belt, where solar plus plus batteries just does the job. But anyway, getting to uh, to, to wind, Matthew, your your story is fascinating. One, of course, what is it? Yeah, this actually comes from uh, Joshua Hill. So uh, excellent reporting on his part. And uh, this relates to Norwegian oil giant Statoil, which has made massive investments in uh, offshore wind. It's their effort to avoid becoming you know, a dinosaur. They developed the world's first floating wind farm. It's currently operating off the coast of Scotland. It's very small. It's like 30 megawatts. So um, it's five um, turbines, nothing like the hundreds of turbines you get in other other deployments. But again, this is the first floating turbine. It's basically like you imagine a wind turbine on a big buoy, a big buoy, and then the buoy is anchored to the seafloor about 100 meters below the surface with a variety of cables. It leverages the offshore oil and gas platforms they've been building for years. So it's a very, um, it may not be like a, a gene transfer kind of a thing, but maybe a mean transfer kind of a thing. And the really incredible part of this, which really uh, leaped out at me, is that they had a 65% capacity factor in the months uh, of like November, December, January, in the middle of winter. And of course, you're not going to get much sun in Scotland in the winter, but 65% capacity factor, I mean, even if it doesn't come at the right times, you slap some storage in there or any sort of flexible uh, demand response, that's amazing for context. Thermal power generators, you know, coal and natural gas power plants in the States, not the peaker plants, but the ones which are supposedly baseload and supposedly running all the time, they only manage maybe 55% now, and that's dropping every year as more renewables are coming in line. So, don't, tell, don't tell the baseload trolls, quick. <laughs> so, so the really amazing thing here is that you actually have a renewable source, wind, which is offering more capacity factor than thermal generation. And as I think Nicholas and Zachary, as you guys mentioned, you can pair that with storage. It is still cheaper to have not only the renewable cheaper than the thermal, it's the renewables have gotten so cheap that the renewable plus the battery is often in many cases cheaper than your thermal power plant. And the thing I always highlight with capacity factor when this comes up in discussions, is just part of the formula. So it's really, a, it's just one of the elements of the formula that talk about, that show you what the total cost per kilowatt hour ends up being. But of course, the higher the capacity factor, the lower the cost per kilowatt hour is gonna be. And the stunning thing in the offshore wind market has been how fast the costs have dropped in the past year or two, a couple of years. It's really been a, a surprise, similar to how big of a surprise the drop in solar was. Uh, several years ago, um, but floating floating offshore wind has always been a bit of a question mark. I, and even like uh, in September, I was on the Zaya Future Enterprise Review Committee again discussing um, 82 companies that were companies and organizations and finalists. We had this discussion about floating wind come up and about who was leading and about what would come of these projects. And Bloomberg New Energy Finance analysts, uh, everyone in the room, nobody really knew. Like, there's a few kind of. Le- semi-leaders, you know, high wind with stat oil, a few others that are doing something, but they're all different approaches. And yep. it's been a big question mark what comes of them. So, and this has been a question mark for several years. This, this project we've written about for several years, high wind. Uh, so it's really awesome. It's freaking awesome to see that this is actually turning out better than expected. So that's, that's wonderful. Nicholas, you, ha- you have some thoughts on it? 
No, I mean, I was just, again, looking at the whole bigger picture and how, you know, there's no, there's no silver bullet. In this case, there's not even any uh, silver, silver buckshot. Uh, it really is a multi-pronged approach to renewable energy. I mean, there's so much. Another thing, too, that we don't hear very often about right now is the different uh, uh, research and uh, development being done on, um, on storage, energy storage. I mean, there's a lot of crazy stuff coming back up, like flywheels, cement flywheels and everything. And I, I think... It's, it's, it's only going to be like, like much cheaper to bring on board more renewable energy system as we go along anyway. So it's just exciting to see uh, the, the variety of options and then technologies out there and how they all mesh well together. And you know what? It reminds me a lot of the, of the internet, the way it is, the way it's been designed. Yeah, the whole decentralized thing. Yeah, exactly. Okay, uh, moving on then. How about uh, your, uh, your highlight of the week, uh, Nicholas? Well, okay, so my highlight of the week is, again, we're going to talk about electric bicycles because I... So I, I had this company come up to me, and, and their name is Rad Power Bikes. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Rad? Seriously? I mean, I'm in California. Oh, my goodness. All we need are flip-flops and everything. So, so I told them, I said, you know, it better be Rad, you know, because with a name like that. This thing came through the post office. It was huge, humongous. They sent me this big, fat, tire electric bicycles. Now, you know, bear in mind, I just came off of the propeller, propeller e-bike, which is so light. It's crisp. It's one of those things you throw in corners. You're, you know, it's a city carver and everything. And all of a sudden I'm sitting on this, for lack of better words, SUV of an e-bike, which I had to put together. And you know what? I've had so much fun. I've put 200 miles on it in two weeks. Just a, a, a lot of fun, a lot of fun. So I would never have thought about this. I would have never even have come up with the idea of a fast, heavy, big tire kind of electric bike, but I'm having so much fun with it. I, I easily do 20 to 25 miles with it in a day. It's just a lot of fun. So that was my shut up, shut out <laughs> and shut up too. <laughs> I'll just say that I, lo I love how much you cover electric bikes. I mean, this is an awesome market and you're just, you're awesome with the coverage. Matthew? Oh, thanks. Yeah, so this uh, this one also uses uh, 18650s, right? Uh, it's like a Samsung. Yes. Variant. Yeah, and and that's one of the things that I really like about this bike is is it, it, you're right. It does use uh, 18660s, whatever they are. But I think the quality, the workmanship uh, for that kind of bike, especially at that price, and yes, it's 1500, but it's still you know entry level for most. If you consider bikes these days, electric bikes, you, you consider the 750 watt uh, motor in it. You consider the battery in it. I mean, it's a, it's a steal, I think, compared to most of the bicycles these days. So um, a, a great way to, to you know, go around. You can actually haul something with it. This is the kind of bike you can go to a grocery store and come back with, you know, those little whatever trainers they, are, they have or, you know, the little thingy that you haul behind. I mean, it's just, it's just an awesome bike. And, and again, I would never have thought of it because it's heavy. It's big. It's, it's, you know, nothing like what I imagine when I think of electric vehicles. But anyway, it's a lot of fun doing those uh, electric bike uh, reviews. Mentioning the, the hauling groceries back from the store, that's actually <laughs> what my next question was going to be, because it would seem to me that um, if you have this kind of a powertrain developed, uh, you have fat tires, which I'm assuming are great for stability, then it sounds like that would be relatively easy to transfer for a cargo bike uh, in Vancouver here, uh, we're kind of Canada's version of Portland. We do have cargo bikes, which move like office supplies through the, the highly dense downtown core. And a number of people who have cargo bikes who live in downtown Vancouver who use those for commuting, like they put their kids in the cargo section. Well, it's, it's a nice cargo section and drop them off and then go on their way. But it would seem to me that having the fat tires, having this kind of a powertrain 
could reduce a lot of the hesitancy people would have about a cargo bike. We live near a hill. I would never have a cargo bike with our kids because I don't want to have to um, cycle up with a heavy load. But then if I do have an electric assist, that changes the equation a lot. Maybe even I could convince my wife to do that uh, because it would be as ominous. But you know, there, I mean, and, and there are tons of, I mean, we always think of electric bikes and bicycles in general for, for the, you know, the southern more uh, warmer states and everything. But for you guys up there, you're right. First of all, a big fat tire. You know what? It's actually not that much more stable. In fact, it's, it's the other way around. It feels like it isn't, but it's just as stable. I think the, the, the only difference I would make is that the thin razor tires or the regular you know, mountain bike tires, we're so used to those. Once you climb on those bigger tires, the fat tires, it's more like going up to a very small motorcycle or a moped as far as handling. Mm. Um, but so, and, and the funny thing is you, you don't put a lot of pressure into it. I mean, 30, 30 PSI, that's way a lot. So you can actually work on the extra smushiness of the suspension of the tire itself. The, the one thing that they do really well though, and we've tested it a little bit here and don't worry, Rad, we didn't do it a lot, but we went on the sand with it and it does grab more. So sand, gravel, and of course, snow. I mean, ice is ice, you know, you'll never have anything that really digs into ice, but I would definitely think, yeah, up, up there, the snow, I mean, you, your, your kids would have fun with it. You know, they would go out in the, in the, in the backyard and use that and jump on top of things. Just very much the same thing that we would do over here, but, you know, without the big tires. So anyway, that's just a, just a thought. I wonder if the fat tire is kind of like a, an image kind of thing. Like even if it doesn't yes. really help you, the psychology of, uh, yes. the psychology of an SUV, I'm higher up uh, in the, in the cabin. So I'm a better, uh, better. MC. You know, and, and, and I think I think you're spot on, and I think that's exactly it. I mean, to me, it's a fad because yes, you can. I can actually ride that bike uh, all the way up to 14 miles an hour just using, you know, no electricity, no nothing. So the difference is that you feel that you are on mushier tires. You don't feel like the tires respond nearly as well, and that's why I call it an SUV in that sense. It's because it does have that little plushy feel to it. And of course, it makes it up with a good, you know, 750 watt motor is perfect for that bike. Yeah, so so those tires, I think that they're more of a fad. And, you know, I think, just look at the way people drive. Look at, the, you know, the attitude that, that people try to have and everything. I mean, those tires should just fit with it. You know, big, bulky, big man riding a big bike. But, you know, eh. they're, they're all, it's kind of like, I mean, and I'm, I know I'm going to infuriate a lot of people. It's like downhill skiing and snowboarding, right? I mean, I, I love both. I've been doing it since I was six and snowboarding since the mid eighties. But I'll tell you one thing with my snow, with my downhill skis, I can go anywhere with, with, you know, with, uh, with my, uh, surfboard, I'm not going to be able to go everywhere. So I think it's kind of like the same idea, you know, it's great for what it does. It's a lot of fun. It's a bit of a fad, but this is the right combination, a big motor, a big battery and a, and a bike that just feels really great. I open the garage every day and I, it's always ready to go. <laughs> I guess like, uh, and not, not to crowd, crowd out Zachary here, but um, I believe there's a photo uh, that came out recently of Canada's uh, first lady, the, the wife of the prime minister, actually uh, cycling, bringing one of their kids to school on a bike in the snow, in the snowy weather. So I'll try and uh, find that. Oh, nice. It'll, yeah. It'll be a nice contrast to the sort of embarrassing um, overcompensating for being a white guy in India that uh, the prime yeah. family has had this, this, uh, this past week, which is, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try and have that uh, happier eco uh, a moment captured. Yeah. Yeah. That would be a good idea. Absolutely. 
Okay, well, I guess that probably rounds uh, things out for now. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. We uh, do hope you had a safe commute, and uh, join us next week to get your electric fix. Thank you, everyone. Have a wonderful week, and then we'll talk next week, and uh, have fun. And, and as always, we love your feedback and your comments.